This is Dialogue with Drake Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Climate change has been described as the single greatest threat facing the planet in human history. First brought to attention in the 1980s, this phenomenon has seen some of the most widespread consensus among scientists internationally. Early discussions of climate change began in the early 19th century. This was with the discovery of the greenhouse gas effect, or the process where gases in the Earth's atmosphere trap the sun's heat. This process makes the Earth much warmer than it would be without an atmosphere. Now, the real game changer for the climate change movement was the 1988 Toronto Conference on Changing Atmosphere, Implications for Global Security. In addition to scientists, the conference was attended by heads of state, non-governmental and governmental organizations, and the United Nations organizations. This also included, at the time, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. Within Canada, climate change has had significant consequences. For example, floods in 2013 in Alberta, as well as increasing frequency of forest fires. The northern part of the country has been especially affected. This is with temperatures increasing at higher rates. This is especially concerning as Canada is the world's seventh largest greenhouse gas emitter. On a public policy level, Canada committed to reducing its greenhouse gas emissions by 30% below 2005 levels by 2030 under the Paris Agreement. Among climate change mitigation policies are carbon pricing, emissions trading, and climate change funding programs. In 2019, the House of Commons voted to declare a national emergency due to climate in Canada. In addition, the federal government announced in late 2020 that they would be planting 2 billion trees over the next 10 years, which is estimated to decrease GHG emissions by up to 12 megatons annually by 2050. UPI has proved itself to be one of the pioneers in climate research in Canada, with UPI's Climate Lab playing a pivotal role. The university has furthermore launched an experiential degree in applied climate change and adaptation and is due to open a Canadian Centre for Climate Change and Adaptation in St. Peter's Bay. With us today to discuss all things climate change and policy is Associate Professor at UPEI, Nobel Laureate, Cat Parent and Pastry Enthusiast, Dr. Adam Fennick. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fennick, for taking time out of your cloudy slash sunny Sunday today. I know we're talking about climate and a little bit of weather. Our first official question for you is, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing really well. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me to have a discussion with you today. Yeah, no, we're so happy to have you on. Sweta and I were texting and we're kind of trying to figure out, okay, you know, what are some ideas for the upcoming weeks? And she had said, you know, we'd never covered climate yet, which is so obviously, you know, ironic, the biggest issue of our time and we haven't talked about it yet. So um, we're really excited to have you, the local expert on about it. (laughs) Well, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and I remember a, a number of, I guess, months ago it was about right before covid which has obviously taken up a lot of our kind of focus point here on the podcast you have been a guest lecturer in my climate policy class and one thing that i learned about you that i thought was really interesting was back in the day in 1988 you were involved in the toronto conference on changing atmospheres and it was actually the first time i learned about this conference was actually from this guest lecture um and kind of learning from it since we've identified that it It was really a pivotal moment in discussing what at the time was referred to uh, the changing atmosphere. So uh, tell us a little bit more about your involvement in that conference and, you know, how it's impacted the future conferences after that. Well, yeah, I'm really I'm really aging myself, aren't I? Talking (laughs) about that was that was my first foray into climate change uh, as an issue. We called it global warming at the time. But it was in uh, way back, wow, you know, uh, quite a long time ago, 1988. Um, it was called the, the Toronto Conference on the Changing Atmosphere, and uh, it was it, it it didn't it was not supposed to focus on global warming. We were actually focusing on uh, three atmospheric issues. That's what's called changing atmosphere. One was acid rain. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that uh, 
you know, industry released uh, sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere and it traveled long distances and fell out of the sky as acid rain and really influenced our lakes and aquatic wildlife. And uh, that was a really big issue throughout the 1970s and 1980s throughout mm. Canada. Um, th another issue was stratospheric ozone depletion, which is the idea of uh, humans um, releasing chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs. These were, these are um, refrigerants that are in our air conditioners or refrigerators, and and you know when we throw them all out into the garbage, they get released into the atmosphere and accumulate up way you know 10 kilometers up in the atmosphere and uh, destroy our ozone layer. Ozone up there is really uh, helpful because it it helps protect us from harmful UVB radiation, ultraviolet radiation, you know, that it causes skin cancer and other nasty things. So, mm. so those were two, two issues that were probably more top of mind. Um, but we're also supposed to be looking at um, global warming. Now, um, uh, just before the con two weeks before the conference, uh, James Hansen, who's probably the most famous climatologist in the world, uh, he's a NASA scientist in the United States, and he had he had appeared before a congressional committee and said that um, he was 50% sure that humans were releasing pollutants, uh, greenhouse gases, into the atmosphere, and that it would warm up the atmosphere to such an extent that it would harm the environment. Mm. And uh, that received a lot of attention. Um, it it became. Uh, um, something that was discussed around the world. And so the Prime Minister of Canada at the time, uh, Brian Mulroney, he decided to our, attend our conference. So mm. all of a sudden it was this um, <laughs> small little scientific conference with uh, a relatively minor budget um, that was turned into uh, a huge ministerial conference because as soon as uh, the Prime Minister said he was attending then uh, other heads of state from around the world said they would be attending mm -hmm. and then with them came all of the international press mm -hmm. and it happened in the city of toronto during a time that record temperatures were occurring and i mm -hmm. remember um, going to and from the conference and and seeing asphalt for the first time sort of melting oh, wow. or at least regrets <laughs> happening in the in the uh, in the asphalt, which you know, since then it's it's come more commonplace, but I hadn't seen that before. So that was one thing that sort of pushed. Uh, there was also a lot of scientific consensus at the time. Uh, at least that's what what some of the journalists were telling me. They said mm -hmm. that you know we've never seen so many scientists agree that yes, um, carbon dioxide uh, released out into the atmosphere is is going to warm things. Now this is a a theory that uh, was over a hundred years old um, and scientists had been meeting in 1985 and 1986, uh, uh, you know, the, the leading atmospheric scientists in the world. And uh, they, they said that, uh, you know, if we, if we keep releasing greenhouse gases, we're going to get this warming that will be more uncontrolled. That's going to start impacting on things. And mm -hmm. that, that Toronto conference that launched climate change or global warming climate change onto the international agenda. And so they started uh, because that that uh, conference came out with the conclusion. It started uh, the statement from the conference stated that, um, you know, humankind is uh, is undertaking uh, an experiment an unintentional experiment that would have repercussions for the planet second only to global nuclear war. Mm, wow. That's a pretty strong <laughs> statement. And at the time they mm. said that we should be reducing our, our carbon dioxide emissions by 20% uh, within 15 years. So mm. immediately, you know, that was seen as a first step. So following that uh, international negotiations began and within uh, four years of uh, the UN um, Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, mm -hmm. was signed in Rio in 1992. 
that said, well, yes, climate change is an issue and we better, you know, try and prevent dangerous uh, climate change. It's important for us to do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, it's really interesting to see how things have changed really in the last almost 33 going on, let's say 35 years now uh, very soon. Um, and, you know, this was just the start of your involvement with climate change and climate action on an international scale though, because our listeners might not know this yet, but you were also on the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, and now you were part of the team which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. Um, Now, since then, of course, now you're involved with UPEI, where you hold a number of roles. Uh, One of them is as an associate professor in the School of Climate Change and Adaptation. In January of this year, so just a few months ago, you were interviewed in a CBC article about how you intended to adapt your courses to COVID-19. And you spoke a lot about the video component um, of the classes. So how did you find the transition with COVID-19? And we were chatting about this a little bit before um, with the climate program being such an experiential program and with you know so many restrictions going on, what were some major barriers that you faced? Well, the University of Prince Edward Island is such a, a, a great place to, to teach. I've, um, <laughs> I, worked, I used to work with Environment Canada for almost 25 years, but I came to the university about 10 years ago. And, and since that time, we've developed uh, the only program in the world, the undergraduate Bachelor of Science in Climate Change and Adaptation. And, and one of the introductory courses in that program is I like to take the students around the island because you know Prince Edward Island is such a beautiful place. We call it the living laboratory because it's <laughs> it's um, it's uh, small enough that you can get around to different parts and you know cross from one side of the island to the other in uh, in a day's time and a few hours time. Um, but it's large enough to really matter so that when you do something here on the island, you can really test it out and then upscale it to take it to other places uh, across the country and around the world. Well, this one course, uh, the introductory course, the field course, I used to go to different parts of the island so that we could see how climate change was impacting uh, on the island and how people were trying to adapt to it. So there's Mm. some places like um, uh, different farming activities, like a sheep farmer, how they're trying to deal with uh, climate change with warmer conditions and that how, you know, using foraging into uh, using the sheep to go and forage in the forest as a way of keeping them cool in the summertime. Or uh, say a uh, 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 Haskett berry farm where, you know, low-till farming, um, or I guess it becomes eventually no-till farming, to be able to have uh, very high-value crops on Prince Edward Island now, because of the increasing uh, temperatures, you know, the increasing temperatures allow for certain crops to survive the uh, the cold winters, um, but also the available heat that's available that's uh, around during the summertime um, allows for the sweetness of certain berries like Haskat berries, um, mm. be uh, which is a high value crop that uh, farmers can use rather than growing other more traditional crops. Um, there were other things like the, the the small seaside town of Victoria by the Sea, where you know the, there's just over a hundred occupants of permanent uh, year-round occupants of the town um, and how they're trying to deal with the changes that are occurring as a result of uh, climate change. Mm -hmm. So because uh, we were told, uh, rightly so, that we can't put people into buses or vehicles where they might be able to transmit this uh, this horrible virus, we said, uh, you know, I thought rather than taking the students to the sites, we'd bring the sites to the students. So Mm. uh, we hired uh, a great production company, um, Hummingbird uh, Photography, and we just went out and filmed uh, all of these different places. And uh, we posted them as what we call Uh, PEI or Prince Edward Island climate stories and you can find those you can probably just go to your 
YouTube uh, uh, software and, and just do a search for PEI climate stories and they'll come up at least some of them. And we produced four of them last year and we're in the process this summer. They were such a success that we're doing another uh, dozen or so this year, looking at things like um, potato farming, looking at um, unique uh, um, uh, Irish moss, unique Irish moss that just grows here on on Prince Edward Island. Um, we're going to be looking at specific um, art exhibits that just try to look at climate change um, and try and um, uh, reflect society's views on climate change um, into the arts community. Um, so things like that. So there's quite a few uh, more stories we're going to be adding to our PEI collection. <laughs> Wow, that's, and I remember reading the article and it's so interesting, you know, to see how, you know, you've had to adapt to keep up with our new, uh, a new normal. Now, how did your students and the various community members that you work with find this transition? Well, um, you know, normally the class is, is fairly limited because, um, you know, you can't get that many people into vehicles to, uh, to zip around the island. One of the um, fortunate things for the Canadian Centre for Climate Change and Adaptation, this is our new research centre where the school is, is going to be uh, hosted, um, we're able to purchase um, two electric vehicles. We have two um, mm. Hyundai Kona vehicles uh, that are fully electric and wow. uh, they have fantastic range. They have 400 kilometer range, Ooh. which allows us to go to one tip of the island and, and return under the same charge. So mm. it's very, um, very useful. But it usually limits the number of students who are uh, taking these introductory uh, climate change courses, the field course. Um, but as we went online, uh, people utilized that opportunity. And so we had over 50 it was over 52 students initially oh, wow. um, in the class. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I think there's some versions of the, you know, the experiential component is you get a chance to, to live and breathe and smell and taste, you know, what the environment is like. Um, you lose a bit of that in the, in the video, but it does make it a lot more accessible. I mm. had, um, I have had students in the previously who, who didn't have the ability to physically uh, join us. Um, so having these uh, videos are one way that we can keep, you know, make sure that the, uh, the course is always accessible to people. So mm -hmm. if they can't come out to the field, they can just watch the videos and do the assignments as required. Mm -hmm. But that's how the students adapted. It was a difficult time, as you know, um, very difficult for most students. Um, but I suppose in the idea of rather than watching me or listening to me drone on about climate change, that they were able to watch these wonderfully produced uh, videos um, uh, the, and, and be able to you know, uh, see how climate change is impacting Prince Edward Island and how these different uh, individuals are adapting to it. It was probably a, a, a refreshing change from most of the online lectures that they were getting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know, you know, this is something Emma and I have spoken about in the past as well, is it's video content is so much easier to absorb than just, you know, reading something or someone just talking to you. Um, it's, you get to have the full breadth of experience and, you know, a lot of folks are visual learners as well. So that would have been, you know, very positive for them as well. Now, speaking about um, the program itself, it's the Applied Climate Change and Adaptation Program, um, technically a it's a Bachelor of Science, but it does have a lot of different components that are required um, you know, to uh, fully access this degree. What I thought was really interesting is actually a first year course, which looks at indigenous knowledge and climate change. So can you tell us a little bit about you know, some of the knowledge that's covered in the course or really what brought about the inclusion of the indigenous knowledge into the degree? Well, it's, um, it's, it's pretty, it becomes pretty obvious to us um, 
our as physical scientists that we don't have the answers. We don't have all of the answers. And, um, you know, usually climate change, initially it was viewed as a sort of an engineering problem, right? That we had an atmospheric concentration of greenhouse gases that were providing, uh, that were keeping in too much heat. And so we just need to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions and uh, therefore more heat will be released and global warming will not happen. Well, lo and behold, we've been spending the last 30 years <laughs> arguing about how are we gonna do that? You know, uh, you know, virtually everything that we do releases greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, us talking here on the, in our Zoom meeting, um, working on our computers, turning on our lights, driving in our cars, um, heating or cooling our homes, you know, all of this stuff produces greenhouse gas emissions. And so how, it's not as if you're, you know, like with stratospheric ozone depletion, all we needed to do was replace uh, chlorofluorocarbons with another chemical um, that would act as a refrigerant or as a propellant in our hairsprays and things like mm. that. So we don't have these types of more magical solutions for climate change. And trying to get countries over the last 30 years, we've been fighting about reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. We haven't come up to any great agreement. Uh, one we have, uh, <laughs> countries haven't met their commitments, including mm. Canada. Yep. Uh, and, and so, you know, a little bit of desperation out there was understanding that the indigenous knowledge allowed us to try and reframe our relationship with the natural environment. And for those of us like myself, who've been studying for this, this issue for over 30 years, um, it, it's, it's just part of the cold reality is that, is that we can't do this alone. Mm -hmm. And so there are some concepts, this idea of two-eyed seeing, where we have our, our Western science uh, that we know about, as well as the traditional knowledge, and neither one can do it alone, that we bring them together, mm -hmm. and it provides us with a greater understanding. And so that's our attempts in... Uh, in this Bachelor of Science pro uh, program. Um, it's not as strong at the moment as we'd like, but we're working on it. And part of it has a, a series of courses that are required in trying to understand ind indigenous knowledge um, as it relates to uh, climate change. Um, and further, um, every one of the courses in the higher uh, years of the program are encouraged and we have a, a half-time indigenous faculty member whose role is um, primarily just to make sure that indigenous uh, understandings are brought into the courses you know be it a course that's based on social or even some of the physical science courses as well so it's a it's a it's a huge challenge i i don't think too many programs have have taken on that challenge Mm. Um, but it's, uh, we're sort of in our infancy. We're, we're just, uh, the September, we have our third year of the program. And so I think it will get better, uh, year after year. Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly as a, as a climate change scientist, um, we have, I, I can, I can tell you that, uh, we haven't done very well at, uh, moving towards, uh, resolving the climate change issue, um, that it, it takes more than just reducing greenhouse gas emissions. What I like to say is, you know, if we were to solve the climate change issue next year by some magical way, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of other environmental issues that are following up behind it, be yeah. it water scarcity, be yeah. it um, reducing biodiversity. So it's not, um, you know, it's not the panacea of that solution. What we need to do is really reframe our relationship with the natural environment. And the uh, best way that I know, or the best teachers of that, are certainly uh, um, 
the indigenous peoples from around the world who have existed for thousands of years in a better, uh, more harmonious, sustainable relationship with the uh, natural environment than certainly uh, the situation we're in right now. Mm -hmm. And I know one thing I appreciated in my class, uh, climate policy with Dr. Reshpunkina, um, she had actually invited in the, the professor you're speaking of, uh, Professor Charlie Sark, who, who is an Indigenous scholar. And it was amazing, I think, to learn from that perspective that I think has been missing so long in this climate change conversation. Like, one of the things um, Professor Sark had mentioned was around, like, um, for example, electric cars are, are oftentimes seen as, you know, an end-all, be-all solution to, to climate change. And he said, okay, well, one of the key elements and ingredients to an electric car is lithium. Where do you find lithium? Well, a large amount of lithium is actually located in directly indigenous communities uh, in South America. And so having understanding both, I think, the need to adapt to climate change, but also how it impacts uh, resources and relationships with Indigenous communities, um, and actually how in some cases, um, a lot of, I think, um, a lot of I would say wealthier countries wanting to develop electric cars, you know, such as the United States, uh, would go into these uh, indigenous communities and, you know, extract all this lithium, but it actually directly negatively impact these indigenous communities. So ensuring that we're kind of aware of when we think of these end all be all solutions, who's the solution for? Is it for wealthy white people living in Canada or is it, you know, a, a holistic solution that also incorporates indigenous knowledge and communities? So um, I, it, it would always just stuck out to me as kind of a, a standout moment in that course at UPEI and just about, yeah, how much that perspective is needed at the table um, in, in all those solutions moving forward. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's, um, it's it's relatively new in a sense that you know there hasn't been this um, authority that's been given to uh, you know try and incorporate indigenous knowledge uh, at, on an equal level with uh, Western science, mm. and that's the that's the biggest difficulty is there's not the immediate resources to make that happen, um, be it the people. Um, you know, because there's a, there's a huge, um, huge time commitment on individuals um, and the, uh, even just a financial commitment, right? The financial is usually there to, to hire faculty members mm -hmm. and it's, uh, it's a difficult thing to do. You know, just culturally, we haven't trained as many Indigenous folks um, through the, through the system, through the academic system. And it's not an easy it's not an easy it's not an easy it's a it's a challenge for for everyone so um which which i'm finding we're trying to do our best um i'm finding that we're failing right now but um we're certainly trying to uh uh increase our our uh our commitment to uh moving forward in these areas and we're just hoping hoping we're able to find the resources to to keep it uh, to to meet the challenge that we've put in front for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and one of the items I think that's really exciting, like you said about, you know, let's invest into this, is the Canadian Centre for Climate Change and Adaptation announced in July 2019. And I remember uh, Sweater and I had the opportunity to, to hop on the school bus. Well, not the school bus, sorry. It, it was a, a maritime bus um, uh, provided by uh, Mike Cassidy, speaking of the Hascap Berries. And um, we had the opportunity to attend that announcement in St. Peter's Bay, the where the new location for the Canadian Centre on Climate Change and Adaptation is. And I remember... Um, uh, Dr. Al Abdelaziz, the president of the university, had been teasing you, saying, you know, oh, I promised you this uh, so many years ago, and I know you didn't believe me, but here we are, sort of thing. And, and I remember just how excited you were, and I think how excited the community were at just the possibility of such a 
exciting new initiative in a local rural community. Uh, I know for myself, having grown up up the road, never in a million years would I have thought there'd be one of the leading institutions uh, on climate change, uh, you know, in, in that community. So uh, it was really exciting. But um, from that kind of climate change perspective, you know, what will be some of those kind of main focal research points uh, with this new prestigious facility? Yeah, it, it was a big surprise. You know, I had kind of given up hope after all the years we've been putting so much effort in lobbying governments and uh, in making plans that I had actually gone off on a full-time sabbatical just days before. And then as a surprise, it came out and said, hey, yep, it's going to happen. So uh, <laughs> I postponed my sabbatical now um, just to try and make things, you know, push things along. Um, it's, uh, it's a wonderful facility, 45,000 square foot, uh, facility up in the small town of St. Peter's Bay, a gorgeous area, about 10 kilometers away from the Greenwich, uh, adjunct of the national park, the PEI national park. Um, St. Peter's is a small community of about 312, uh, individuals, um, and we're, you know, uh, when we're up and running, we'll have a hundred new people coming in and out of that community. <laughs> um, I was up there yesterday, just driving around and saw the building. It's almost, uh, you know, it's it's due to be completed in October of this year. Wow, wow. that's so <laughs> yeah. exciting. Well if, you, well, if you've been up there, you'll see what uh, uh, I mean. It, it really dominates the landscape right now. Gorgeous building. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think there's 16 offices. There wow. are two large um, uh, design studios, classroom areas. Um, there's a drone port because yes. we, have, uh, <laughs> we have the largest fleet of drones of any university in Canada at the moment, including the largest drone with a wingspan of 12 feet or, or four meters. Mm. Um there's, uh, you know, some public areas. Uh, it's a residence as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's a three-story building. The top two stories are for um, 50 individual rooms for mm -hmm. uh, as a residence. So it's it's really going to ch it's changing the landscape right now, but it's it's going to certainly change the community. Big time. Um, it's uh, the the climate center is uh, three main things. It's a school to begin with, right? So we have the the Bachelor of Science in Climate Change and Adaptation. Like I said, the only one in the world at the moment. Um, we also have a, a graduate program, a master's program, sort of waiting in the wings as well. Um, it's also a research facility, mm. and uh, you know we've worked with stakeholders uh, across the island on several occasions and they've identified sort of three main areas based on our our primary expertise and the needs of the island uh we've we're going to be looking at climate coastal science we're going to be looking at food security and sustainability and we're going to be looking at um human animal and human health so and and the impacts of climate change on that mm -hmm. so um the research is uh is a is a large component the third component is a sort of a professional training now we've received some significant funding from the federal and provincial governments to develop a professional training program called climate sense and climate sense mm -hmm. is uh, is a way of in prince edward island to learn more um uh, to build and enhance uh, the adaptive capacity of the island to respond to climate change. So help them understand impacts of climate change and how best to live with it or adapt to climate change. So we have those three things. We've got the school, the research area, uh, the research and the, um, uh, and the professional training. And this is emphasized by, um, you know, the UPEI climate lab that I created 10 years ago. We've been really successful over the years raising about $10 million in research money. Wow. Um, and what it's done is uh, we've really built uh, strengths in three main areas, um, big data analytics, in drone technology, and in virtual reality. So 
we're trying to bring those leading edge technologies to help respond to the climate change challenge. And mm. it's the only uh, place where we, I think this is being done. So it's, it's really helping those students there, you know, when they graduate with a, with a drone pilot license, with a, <laughs> Ability to build video games to show how environmental change might happen, to be able to do climate change impact assessments, to understand the output from global climate models. Like these are, these are really important skills for our future um, uh, individuals to have to be able to uh, respond to the climate change challenge. So mm -hmm. I think it's a great opportunity, and so looking forward to that building being built in October. Um, I'm not sure. I think we're planning on a full, um, full occupancy, uh, as of January. Of wow. 2020. Wow. Holy cow. Time flies, especially when there's a global <laughs> sure pandemic does. in the middle frig. Wow. That is so exciting. Well, I mean, congratulations, because I think this is, as you said, been many years in the making and has been a lot of time and effort associated with, um, like you said, on the lobbying piece, uh, getting the governmental partners involved. And um, I think really just, um, you know, articulating that vision as to what what this could provide. Um, so mm -hmm. kind of as a follow up to that, like, I remember during the presentation, um, you know, a lot of people had talked about, you know, this is going to provide us the solutions of, you know, what we need to address climate change tomorrow. And, you know, I, I, I felt that a little bit bizarre because I said, well, you know, there are some solutions that exist today. It's a question of whether or not you want to adopt them or, you know, utilize them. Um, that comment aside, that's me on a personal note. How do you feel? you know, a, a, a climate center such as this will impact Canada's role in adapting to climate change. You had mentioned before around, you know, Canada's not meeting its targets right now, but, you know, when we have the only program of its kind right now and, and somewhere like PEI, I feel like that that's going to have a pretty influential role. Like, do you feel that, you know, a center like this will push the needle either in, you know, the science piece or do you feel like this will push the needle perhaps on a political piece in terms of policy and, and change making? How do you feel this this will impact kind of Canada's role as a whole? Well, I think I'm on both sides. I, I you know, my uh, my background is uh, interdisciplinary and I've always found that that's the most important thing when you're dealing with uh, mm -hmm. environmental issues is you have to understand the uh, implications for policy, but you do need the background in the science to be able to fully understand um, uh, the uh, implications as well. And uh, this is the best way, way I think the country is going to be able to address if we're releasing you know 40 experts every year to be out there to help municipalities to help provincial governments to help the federal government to help communities in understanding the impacts and then uh, being able to deal with those impacts um, that's that's where we'll know whether we're successful Mm -hmm. um, not just graduating them, but making sure that they can make a real difference once they get out there. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've put my 30 years of experience into uh, this program, into designing this program. And what I feel are the, the skills and the knowledge that are necessary mm -hmm. for individuals to have so that, you know, when they walk into a job, in a community, in a municipality, in a provincial government, they they know what needs to be done. They have the skills to uh, understand and to analyze data, to be able to visualize that data, to be able to know how to respond to things. Um, you know, part of our program, uh, where it is heavily science-based, it also it, the political components, the pol political science or climate management components of it as well, teach about the players and the power relationships and the processes involved in climate policy throughout the country and internationally. And so it gives uh, you know sort of such a wide, broad range skill set that you really need when you're dealing with environmental issues in general and 
climate issues uh, specifically. So, um, yeah, I, I, I feel good if, if we can get that indigenous part as well. I think it's going to be a very powerful group of individuals that we'll mm -hmm. have going out into the uh, into the workforce. You know, we've listened very strongly. I've listened over the years. Um, in fact, that's how I got into teaching years ago is um, <laughs> so I used to hire students from the University of Toronto and uh, you know, if they'd come to work with me for the summer, they, they usually didn't have the skills to, you know, analyze climate data. And, and, and uh, you know, by the time I got them up to speed, they, they went back to school. Mm. So I used to complain to the professors at, at the University of Toronto. I said, well, you know, why don't you teach these, you know, the real skills <laughs> that are needed? And they said, well, put your money where your mouth is, Fennec, come and teach. <laughs> and so, so I did. I did. I started that. And uh, our courses are, are quite, um, uh, quite experiential, quite uh, skills focused, as well as um, having the, um, the necessary knowledge um, and analytical skills that are, are necessary for uh, higher education. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've, been, we've been asked to disrupt higher education in our, in our program. So rather than have in a usual classroom, you know, you normally teach three hours uh, per week for 12 weeks, um, we've kind of thrown that out the window. We don't have exams. We do have other ways of, of evaluation. Um, we also are, are, um, uh, are implementing the school curriculum through specific projects. So we're working with a stakeholder in the community who has uh, a problem, uh, an issue dealing mm -hmm. with uh, mm -hmm. climate change. And so rather than have them, um, uh, you know, just teach them things in the classroom, we'll get them right out there working with stakeholders, uh, determining what the, uh, the problem is, um, utilizing their skills, learning their skills uh, and necessary to address the, the problem. So something, for example, we're working with Parks Canada in trying to understand uh, the changes in the coastal habitat for species at risk. And uh, so, you know, we teach about the species at risk uh, uh, science, the species at risk legislation that's out there. Uh, we teach them how to fly drones so they can collect uh, uh, vi uh, visual data um, teach them a geographic information system so they can compare year-to-year -year data, uh, teach them how to um, access satellite imagery so they can do comparisons from previous years, um, and then teach them how to write reports, design a study and write a report up of that study so that it's of use to our client, in this case, Parks Canada, who wants mm. to know, you know, how has that coastal habitat for species at risk been changing over time. Things like piping plover is an example of uh, species at risk and they, they prefer a, a specific type of uh, coastal environment. So we can track over time, you know, uh, the, the spatial component of that and visualize that uh, so that we can map it and, and give it to um, uh, give it to the to the park ecologists so they can use that for information mm. moving forward. So it's a it's a very experiential, integrated, um, uh, intensive uh, course uh, and uh, uh, program. So it's uh, it's it's I don't think it's been done before, and so we're going to learn a lot. Probably make a lot of mistakes along the way, but. Um, <laughs> I think in the end, we're going to come out with something that's that's unique and uh, uh, innovative. And so we're recording that and evaluating every step of the way. Mm. Wow. It, it seems like the more I hear about the program and the center, the more excited I get for it and, you know, the potential that it has in the work that it does. Uh, one interesting point that you brought forward is, of course, looking at climate policy that is backed by physical science and data up until now. Uh, as the director of the UPI Climate Lab, uh, you would be, of course, responsible for the information that is transmitted through there. Um, on the website, there is a petition that supports PEI in becoming Canada's first zero carbon emissions province. 
Um, in the fall of 2020, the province of PEI uh, released a path towards net zero with two very specific commitments, um, net zero energy by 2030 and net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2040. For our listeners, what is the difference between net zero energy versus net zero greenhouse gas emissions? Well, the net zero energy just means that you should be um, creating um, renewable energy, and that's usually solar or wind or geothermal or tidal energy, energy that doesn't produce um, greenhouse gas emissions, that that equals the amount of energy that you're actually utilizing. So whatever is produced is being uh, utilized. When we talk about, um, uh, you know, zero uh, greenhouse gases. Uh, we're fortunate that nature plays a really good role in capturing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and storing it into their tissues, so plants and trees and that. And so um, that would mean that all of our activities in which we release greenhouse gases, that we also have activities like planting trees, um, there are other things we can do for bu building um, carbon content in soils, in which that we can store the carbon as well. So the first is just uh, focused on the energy aspects. So if you have a building, let's say, like the house that you live in, that the energy that you're using to heat the home, to cool the home, to run the lights and run your computers, all of that is being produced uh, through renewable energy, through solar, through wind, mm -hmm. through geothermal, or some combination of all, all of those. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. And what do you think are some key indicators and metrics for net zero energy by 2030? Well, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I've been pushing for, and I'm not the only one, certainly, um, you know, we, over the last hundred or so years, we've really been served well by this this large centralized system of energy that gets pushed through our power lines that comes into our homes. And it's um, at, you know, and it's been really helpful for the type of growth that we've had in Canada and other places around the world. Mm. But it, it can be very fragile. I mean, you know, we experience here on PEI, um, uh, certainly blackouts or, or large storms that knock out our, our infrastructure that uh, puts it down for several days sometimes. Um, and also to transmit that uh, electricity into our homes is not as efficient as if we were you know, producing it right at the home itself. And so I've always been pushing for individual households or individual buildings to be responsible for its own energy requirements. And some mm -hmm. of that means that um, you know that that every house should have its own solar power uh, so that we have solar panels on the roof or you have a solar uh, field we call it an array of solar panels outside mm -hmm. also you know wind energy tends to be these very large wind turbines which are providing us with renewable energy but they do take a lot of maintenance. They take a lot of, um, of oil uh, to, uh, they do sometimes have concerns about noise. I don't find them particularly noisy. Um, <laughs> they do sometimes impact on wildlife, birds and bats, um, mm. although it is fairly minimal. Um, but I don't know of any smaller wind turbines that uh, can work well for homes at the moment. But um, I think maybe if we put some, do some research and see if, you know, wind might be another component of that. Geothermal is where we tap into, you know, we just dig, dig into the ground below us and it moderates all the temperatures for us. So mm. during the uh, summertime when it's too hot in your house, you can go into the ground and pull out the, uh, the cooler air. And when it's uh, too cold in the house during the winter time, you can go deep into the ground and get the warmer air. So 
it, uh, it allows us to sort of moderate the temperatures that are within your house. And these are technologies that, you know, geothermal certainly we've had for years and years. Um, solar we've known about and has just become very affordable so that the, um, the payback period, so you can purchase the solar panels now and then within six, six and a half years, it will pay for that infrastructure change. And then you get free energy for the life cycle of that uh, that solar system and so that they're they're guaranteed for 25 years um, but they anticipate they can even last longer so you know you've got that upfront cost but then you've got the continual you know uh, pollution free energy system mm-hmm. um, at least in terms of comparisons with uh, let's say oil and gas. Uh, uh, that, that we have uh, in, in most homes on mm-hmm. PEI right now. Mm-hmm. So if, if we wanted to, um, you know, so rather than continuing to rely on these large centralized energy systems, if every home and every building could be responsible for its own energy requirements and then mm-hmm. could share that energy for peak requirements for, for homes that are close to each other. I live in a house that's kilometer away from anyone else so i should be responsible <laughs> for my own um but most people live closer than that and mm-hmm. that they help each other out mm-hmm. during times of uh, you know peak needs and that kind of thing and this is uh like i said it's not my own thoughts um uh, there's a an author jeremy rifkin who calls it the third industrial revolution and this is one of the opportunities that uh, he's suggesting for one way that the world can become uh, certainly a lot more sustainable um, and a lot more secure in its energy requirements if they're if each household is responsible mm. uh, for that so you're not reliant on a breakage in the delivery of that electricity that happens kilometers away from you you're only reliant on on the system that's there in your own in your mm-hmm. own building Mm-hmm. So those are those are some of the things. Like as an indicator, you could you could you could choose um, you know how many households have their own energy system that's uh, renewable energy yep. uh, that's able to support the activities of that um, household. So that could be something that that might be worthwhile tracking over time to tell you whether or not you're making progress mm-hmm. towards. Um, a more uh, sustainable Prince Edward Island. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a similar question if we're looking at net zero emissions here is, what do you think are some key components to, a, to achieve net zero emissions by 2040? And how would you gauge the success? Well, you gauge your success whether or not you get to net zero. Um, <laughs> but but how how do you do that? Um, and again, a lot of this has to rely on our relationship with nature. Mm-hmm. And I've pointed to nature providing us with these great storage systems of carbon, which are like the soil, mm. the, to get the more organic content of our soils, which make the soils better for growing crops. Mm-hmm. Um, that that will store a lot of the carbon for us for trees uh if we plant more trees i mean it's not a it's not the the only solution but you can never do any harm planting trees right no and it probably is best if you plant trees that are going to survive and thrive under climate change you are you don't want to be planting trees because there are certain species of trees that are not going to survive or thrive the change in climate that's going on. Mm. You know, things have been getting warmer here on PEI. They've been getting drier. And so there are certain types of, uh, of tree species that we could be focusing on um, if we wanted to store in the long term our, uh, our uh, store, the capture the carbon dioxide from the air and store it into the, uh, the tree species. And so um, certainly planting more trees, uh, like I said, you can't do any harm doing that. Um, and so maybe that's an avenue that uh, we should all be thinking about. Where can we plant trees? Let's make sure they're the trees that are going to survive and thrive, mm. uh, you know, that are meant to be here 
uh, on Prince Edward Island. You don't want any ornamental trees or other, <laughs> you know, uh, strange biodiversity trees uh, that are going to introduce um, uh, a place for, um, you know, foreign pests to uh, take over. But if you have uh, local, more indigenous species that are going to survive and thrive under climate change, we might... Uh, we might do that. It might be the, the best route to take. So I think uh, the amount of, of hectares of planted trees and the amount of uh, carbon dioxide that those uh, trees are able to capture, we call it sequester, sequester into their, mm. into their fiber, um, uh, you know, over a hundred years, that probably might be a good indicator to be tracking over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You heard it here first, folks, the catch-all, end-all, be-all <laughs> solution to climate change, plant more trees. <laughs> you, can't, no. you, can't, you can't do any harm. You can't do any harm planting a tree. Uh, I, I'm just joking. Can't I'm do just any joking. harm. Yep. I, I remember actually, um, Frig, the time is escaping me, but I remember a number of months ago that the federal government does part of their, their climate change adaptation plan was to, you know, plant X amount of trees by XYZ year. And a number of people, I think, were a bit uh, a bit more meaner, particularly on the Internet, saying, oh, yeah, I'll just plant more trees. That'll solve climate change. But as you said, like, you know, <laughs> as it's a good goofy, place to start. It's, it's a good place to start. And like you said, it's not going to cause any harm and um you know what it's just one solution of many that we inevitably have to take if we want to adapt so um no mm -hmm. definitely right on well that concludes the 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 less serious part of our our interview today dr fennick we're gonna move on to our beer, beer panel um it's taken on a life of its own as listeners probably know we've gotten lots of different recommendations be it beer be it recipes be it restaurants um so yeah we'll hand the floor over to you as our special guest what would you like to recommend to our listeners well, I'm a little biased here because my father was a trained pastry chef, and you can you can see by wow. my 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 heft that I really do enjoy the sweet tastes of great pastries and croissants <laughs> and all of that. And I've, it's just come to my attention over the last few weeks that I've been um, I've been traveling out uh, out to Orwell. There's mm. a place called uh, Country Tastes. And it's, uh, there's a famous chef, uh, Alona Daniels, and it's her brother, who's a pastry chef for Country Tastes. And they've been producing beautiful uh, chocolate croissants and mm. uh, breakfast sandwich croissants and breads and, and other pastries, um, uh, bagels, and beautiful coffees and mm. chai lattes and beautiful <laughs> stuff out there. Uh, my wife and I travel out there, um, you know, we've been going every Saturday uh, and just enjoying uh, some treats uh, uh, for breakfast and it kind of holds us out for the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> so it's my, if, if you like a good uh, uh, pain au chocolat, as they say in Paris, um, it's as good as, as Paris's. So um, I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> right on well it's a it's a wonderful spot um i know uh i, I visited once and i absolutely agree the only thing I, I will uh i will challenge you on dr fennec is is it pain au chocolat or is it chocolatine now sweda and i have gotten into a fist fight over this before <laughs> um there are differences in in terminology on that so um just uh, just so you know, our listeners, some of them might be very upset with you. Uh, well, you are <laughs> right, joke. Emma. I'm, so I'm joking. I'm joking. I, they, they are actually, the, they are chocolatine. Um, they, they, they've introduced something else. It's a chocolatino creme, which Ooh. is cream-filled um, chocolate croissant or cream-filled chocolatine. So um, enjoy those. I haven't had one of those yet because they look pretty messy. <laughs> and I've been eating in the car, so I didn't want 
to put that all over my shirt in my lap. So, uh, but if you're going to stay there, there is, you can stay in, you can eat in, um, but highly recommended. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the chocolatine versus pain chocolat debate uh, just wages on and we'll probably continue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not just between the Emma and me, debate. but everywhere. the raging debate. It is, it is. <laughs> you wouldn't believe this dates back to 2018. And it may or may not have started with the unfortunate result of the Belgium versus France uh, FIFA semifinal qualifier. And um, Mm -hmm. suffice to say, um, there were some tears shed. um, But anyways... Well, it's it's Euro Cup this this summer, so maybe we can get it resolved before the... The, the soccer starts up again. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because Belgium is actually first ranked overall right now. So we'll see how this <laughs> this upcoming tournament goes. <laughs> is it, well, is we'll it, see. Is that we'll your see. team, Emma? Is that your team or is that your team, Sweta? Belgium is Emma's team and France is mine. So <laughs> France is yours, okay. Uh, we tend to get into a few disagreements over this. <laughs> It's probably one of the things. I'll stick to my heritage. I'll say go Lions. So I'll I'll (laughs) be cheering for England. I'll be cheering for England. So maybe we can get together and, uh, you know, hopefully tears will not be shed. (laughs) I hope so too. I I, I feel as though the rankings are reflective of uh, the current talent and uh, prestige amongst the uh, international soccer slash football community. So, uh, Sweden, I'll hand it over to you. Because the ranking when no matches are being played matter a lot, as we all know. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll see how this summer turns out. Um, I will shift the conversation here because otherwise this debate could go on for another hour. Uh, So my recommendation for the day, I think I'm going to stick with the dessert theme. Um, I tried Holman's ice cream parlor in Summerside for the first time this week, and Mm. it's probably some of the best ice cream I've ever had. It's like they make their own waffle cones, and I had um, the strawberry a la creme, so that was really good. Uh, But yeah, you just walk in, and it's in this older building in Summerside, and you just get hit by the smell of freshly baked waffle cones and ice cream, and it's just, you get transported to the summer. So that's my recommendation for the day. Holman's in Summerside. Just one of my favorites. <laughs> I can agree with you on that one, Sweta. Excellent. We have this ongoing issue, Dr. Fennec, where Sweta and I will think of the same thing to recommend. And it's interesting that she recommended Holman's ice cream and specifically the strawberry cream ice cream because that is exactly the ice cream I had when I went there like 10 days ago. So... <laughs> Anyways, I guess it won't be recommending that. No, I do. It's very good. Um, you know what? Uh, now that we brought up Belgium, I'll, I'll bring it up anyways. I'll, I'll be the only beer recommender. Um, but I think I haven't recommended this one yet. I will, though. Um, I'm just going to recommend a Chimé Blue. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a beer from Belgium. I'm pretty sure you can get it in uh, PEI, perhaps at the... Um, the more nicer liquor store whose name I'm forgetting because I've never actually been. Thank you, Notables. Um, But yeah, it's a good beer. Uh, The the Chimé group in uh, Belgium are are one of the probably more well-known ones. Um, They've got a number of different kinds. They've got red. They've got white. There was a limited edition gold whenever I lived there that I think I tried. But the blue is a classic. It's one of those beers that um, you have kind of at the end of the evening and you just sip on and, and enjoy. So if you're ever out and you see Shime also at some restaurants, that'll be my recommendation for the day. Mm-hmm. And I will not fight you on the beer. I don't think France does beer well at all. <laughs> it's like they're chocolate. It's garbage. <laughs> 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 Alas, I, I think, uh, Dr. Finnick, you've heard enough of Sweat and I's uh, blood feud for <laughs> one day. It's It's been awesome to be able to connect with you again and, and chat about climate and a lot of the exciting things coming up on PEI. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the rest of your day. Great. Bye now. See ya. And that's all the time we have for today, folks. Thank you to Dr. Fennett for providing us with his insights. 
As always, our opening and closing music is Guess Crazy by Shane Pendergast. Now, as always, Shane has a few shows coming up. First and foremost, Kaylee at the Benevolent Irish Society. That's Friday, June 4th, 2021, 8 to 10 p.m. Then again, as you folks know already, Shane has two shows live at the Harmony House. First one, Friday, June 11th, 2021, and then again, Saturday, June 12th, 2021. Both those shows are 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. We hope you're enjoying the warmer weather, getting vaccinated, and staying safe. This has been Dialogue.